we are recording on Valentine's Day. This is my official Valentine's Day sweater. I stole it from my mother. It is vintage, 80s, excellent. It's like a crop too. It's great. <laughs> I was just thinking I was supposed to go to a party on Saturday uh, that the for which the uh, theme was the 90s. And I grew up in the 90s, so the problem I was having was I still wear all that stuff, and it's not distinct as a a period, except for, like, grunge and stuff, which, again, I still wear it. That's what I garden in, so I don't want to wear it to a (laughs) ball. And then I'm like, well, the 80s merge into the 90s. Maybe I could just get some bright stuff. So I went out and I got some um, acid-washed. Uh, pre-ripped denim jeans. Um, Excellent. The little little skinny belt and a a really heinous Fresh Prince of Bel Air looking shirt that I could tuck in and and do up here and some white Adidas, which fit Excellent. me at the thrift store. I could not find fat laces, but I got some rainbow laces. And then my wife got COVID, so we didn't go. Oh no! I hope that she is recovering okay and uh, feeling better. She's That's COVID. a real bummer. Yeah, but, you know, such is life. But now I have acid-washed jeans that I can wear. You know, I had acid-washed jeans that I literally wore until I could not wear them anymore. They were ripped so badly that I was like, I cannot be seen in public in these jeans anymore. But they were worth it. I had gotten them ironically, and then I just wore them all the time because they were amazing. Yeah, sort of like this mustache I grew ironically too. And here it is 12 years later and it's what I become known for. So, you know, the things we do to amuse ourselves and our friends that then become like, I'm a living joke. Well, you know what we get to, we, we are the people who make life more interesting. So you're welcome world. (laughs) You are welcome world. You know, it's funny. That's what I say to my students all the time. I'm like, uh, graduating is with an undergraduate degree, especially is an indication that you can navigate an inefficient bureaucracy, which is useful because you'll do that for the rest of your life. What you learn in your major, especially in anthropology will make you a more interesting person to talk to. A hundred percent. I always tell all my pre pre pre-med kids, I'm like, you know, you could take, you know, uh, get your biology classes, get your chemistry classes. But if you're an anthropology major, I promise that putting the biology and chemistry in a way that is really, really interesting will be something that you get to do. So come over to the dark side. Come be an anthropologist. So with that, (laughs) hey, Malika. Chris, how are you? I am awesome. And I'm not going to complain at all today because it turns out that I complain a lot and I'm not really that unhappy. It just sort of seems to be a thing that I do. So I am awesome. Everything is awesome. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Or Galentine's Day. Galentine's Day, Valentine's Day, or the St. Valentine's Feast, I think is also this time. Lots of things happening around this time. I think it's also a Supreme Court Justice's, former Supreme Court Justice's birthday, but I don't know who. Well, Lots of things on I'll this very special day. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but there are certain there people I, I will not celebrate. <laughs> I think it's also Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras, I like. Yeah, so it's know. a it's a very festive Tuesday. I'm very happy to be here to. Is it, uh, is it Fat Tuesday? I think it is. <gasps> so I was recently in Galveston last week, and uh, apparently Galveston has a very exciting. Mardi Gras culture, uh, similar to New Orleans. I was uh, not expecting that, but they have crews and they have parades and they uh, quickly uh, shoot us out of our hotel so the real party goers can come through. Nice. It was very interesting. Well, you know, I watched Treme 
the the show about New Orleans after Katrina. And there was uh, a lot of movement. Like in the show, there was this guy from Houston who kept going back and forth. And I was always like, why is it always Houston, right? And New Orleans is four and a half hours away from me. We go there not as regularly as I was like, but, you know, I thought I had looked at New Orleans on a map. Apparently, I had not, because it turns out Texas is right next door. Houston is right next door. Galveston's not too far away. It's not It's not unusual that that culture would be shared. I know it, it extends to Mobile and into Alabama. For some reason, I find it surprising that it extends into Texas as well. But there you go. I know in, in, in my imagination, Texas exists as its own entity. So it oh, is nearby nothing. <laughs> in, I just read James Missioner's book on Texas and to give more the, the credence that everyone I think gives it, all Texans see Texas as its own <laughs> place still, even because it once was a republic of its own. And yes. so I mean, not many states can be like, yo, we were a country for a minute. What about you? <laughs> Anyway, we're probably not talking about Texas today, are we? Um, we I, don't, I don't believe we are. In fact, I would say, arguably, we are talking about the very opposite of Texas. Chicago and? Chicago, cold, Siberia. Yeah. I would say the opposite of Texas. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe they do have a equivalent of cowboy culture out in Siberia, but we can ask our next guests what they think about that. So who are we talking to? Today, we are talking to Dr. Stephanie Levy. Again. And, uh, Welcome I, it's back. It's so exciting. So uh, Steph was actually one of Sausage of Science's first guests. I think her episode was episode 29, 27. Oh, really um, we'll put it in the show notes so folks can uh, go back and listen to her earlier work. But she is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Hunter College, a faculty member of the CUNY Graduate Center Department of Anthropology, and a core faculty member of the New York Consortium in Evolutionary Primatology, a very, very cool group that goes across the entire state of New York. Uh, she is a biological anthropologist specializing in human biology, and she obtained her uh, Bachelor's of Sciences in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Michigan. Go blue. Oh. Michigan runs deep. Wait, uh, you're Michigan too? Oh, yeah. I graduated oh my, my undergrad from Michigan. <laughs> you people. All right. <laughs> Talking about uh, academic families. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so that was in 2009. And she received her PhD in Biological Anthropology from Northwestern in 2017. She is a co-PI on the Indigenous Siberian Health and Adaptation Project, also called ISHAP, a collaborative project that includes researchers based in Russia and the U.S. and has collaborated on projects with the Yale Reproductive Endocrinology Lab as a postdoctoral researcher. Her, her research explores how environmental conditions across the life course influence population variation in metabolism and disease risk. Dr. Levy investigates human evolution, adaptation, and health by integrating tools from energetics and endocrinology, and her main ultimate goal is to foster comparative research at, that examines how ecological and social environments shape biological variation across human populations and primate species. So for those of you paying attention, we've connected our Michigan dots, a constellation of anthropologists and human biologists coming out of Michigan, coming out of Northwestern. She did, you said postdoc with Yale? Yep, at Yale. So that, so that would have been Claudia Vallegia and or uh, Catherine Panterbrick, probably? 
So connecting dots with lots. And I would say, let's see, CUNY Graduate Center, Felicia Matamenos is at Queens, so there's a, a connection there. So for listeners, I'm just trying to connect the dots. One of the things that I love to do is to sort of not just find out about how people develop the research projects and what their origins are, but to see how the how people connect, because we can trace theory that way. Absolutely. And I, I think what's also heartening to know is that the human biology community and the larger biological anthropology community is pretty small. We are mm. all pretty tightly connected. And even for those of us who feel like we are at the fringe or maybe want to be at the fringe, you just tap into one node and you're connected to the full big body. I think uh, Steph, Steph was, um, we can we can ask her specifically, I think she was working with Rick and uh, Rick Berbieskis mm-hmm. and it's interesting because I think That's Yale right. in particular right. is right. is an anthropology constellation that is really touching on all different kinds of disciplines, not mm. just anthropology. And so that is just, it's interesting to see how we all integrate with each other in very interesting ways. You make a good point too. And it's funny that I mentioned Catherine and not Rick, because we've had Rick on the show and not Catherine, but she was the president of HBA. And I, I, I interacted with her so much that she pops into my head, but let's bring Steph in. We can ask her what she's been Absolutely. doing since the last interview. Hi, Steph. How are you? Good. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be interviewed again and such a delight. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah, we're really happy. I was just texting Kara. She says hello from Finland. Yeah. I'm Kara. <laughs> and so she was just texting you yes. also. So I'm sure you you know who she is and what she's up to. Yeah. Uh, I hope she's taking lots of pictures. The The photos from her previous trip were just so amazing, seeing those reindeer in the snow. I mean, it's so beautiful. So I hope everything's going smoothly for her. And I can't wait to hear about her results. Absolutely. Because uh, as I read your paper, I'm like, it's all fitting together for me. So it's it's always funny to do, for me, I'm the non-energetics person without care here, but Malika is like, has the same hat. So I'm going to pass the baton and see where Malika takes this. You know, I want to talk about your, your new paper that's an AJHB, but before we do that, we had mentioned that, you know, you have been on the show before, uh, you were episode 29, like early in the iterations of Sausage of Science. So I'm curious if you want to just give the listeners kind of like an update of like where, how your life has taken you since then, because so much of this show is not just the science, but like how we as humans are have to do the science. And, yeah. you know, you're an early career researcher that I look up to personally. And so knowing your journey, I think is would be great. Okay, yeah, no problem. And I was thinking about that interview. And just I was insanely nervous. Uh, Kara was doing such cool work. And I knew of Chris's work, but we had not met other and then like in passing at the HBA. So I was super intimidated. I mean, like borderline, I yeah, I was so scared. And now today I'm just too busy to feel scared. I think if I it's a good thing I have a packed day because otherwise I would get nervous again. But when for that original um, interview, I had completed my dissertation research and was just beginning a postdoc working with Rick Bribieskas at the Yale Reproductive Ecology Lab, getting you know thinking about pilot pro- a pilot project and starting to publish that dissertation research. Um, so since then, I've had the fortunate opportunity to join the faculty at Hunter College. I'm an assistant professor here. 
Um, I also have an appointment and uh, as a, I have the opportunity to advise PhD students through the CUNY Grad Center since Hunter is a CUNY school and be part of uh, the NICEP network, which is the New York Consortium in Evolutionary Primatology. Uh, so it's been really exciting to join a really vibrant network of biological anthropologists. I've learned so much about the other sub-subfields through this network. And me and Felicia and, and Victoria, to some degree, are also, she's a, Victoria um, is a uh, more of a forensic anthropologist, but Felicia Matamenos and myself are kind of holding down the human bio for it in, in NICEP. So it's been really fun to uh, make new connections here, meet fantastic students, and get going with some new projects. That's awesome. And we were uh, before you came on, we were sort of talking about your trajectory and we were we were making those connections as well. And the one I forgot is I was when Malika was like, yeah, go blue. I failed as a CUNY alum to say, yay, CUNY, because yeah, that's where I did CUNY. my undergrad. So and New Pulse? were you at New Pulse? I taught there. I, I did my oh. uh, my doctorate at Albany. So I did oh, CUNY oh, and SUNY and I and I taught in uh, the SUNY system. So I'm, I'm nice. familiar with all that. And yes. Like, uh, I don't know, Victoria, but I mentioned Felicia, you guys are holding down the human bio there. These constellations of how we develop our careers, but also how we share theory, I think is important to highlight. So in that regard, let's talk about brown adipose tissue, right? So we actually talk about brown adipose tissue a lot on this show. uh, (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) I wonder why, right? And, And as I'm reading your article, I'm thinking, oh, I see. Now I understand exactly what Kara is doing literally this moment. She's comparing... Uh, reindeer herders to finish people who aren't reindeer herders. And and what I saw in your paper was a similar comparison, but cross-culturally. So let's just start first with the paper in AJHB. And, and the reason we're focusing on AJHB is because one, this podcast is affiliated with it. And two, we want to amplify the work that human biologists are doing in our affiliated journal and, and see if it, it helps, right? So we're going to measure the impact of talking about Uh, your article called Brown Adipose Tissue Thermogenesis Among Young Adults in Northeastern Siberia and Midwest United States and its relationship to other biological adaptations to cold climates. So um, refresh our memories, what's brown adipose tissue and how is our understanding of it, because we have talked about what it is, changed since we talked to you last? Yeah, there's been some exciting work to come out in the last few years. Um, so brown adipose tissue is a form of a specialized form of fat. Um, for any listeners that are like, what what the what is brown fat? I'm not familiar. It's so the when we think of body fat, we primarily think of what's called white adipose tissue. That's the form of fat that is um, has evolved to store excess energy. And what's cool about brown fat is that it's using that excess energy to produce heat. It has a high concentration of mitochondria in its cells. Those are the powerhouse of the cells. And when we feel cold, our body activates those brown fat cells to increase the metabolic rate of that tissue. And it has a special protein that allows that tissue to produce a lot of heat. So, This is the primary way babies stay warm since babies don't have uh, very developed musculature. They're not able to shiver. And for a long time, we thought that adult humans lost their brown fat as they aged. But it turns out some of us retain it, particularly in the neck area above the clavicle. 
um, and also around major organs too. Uh, so I've been fascinated by this question of why do some people retain it? Why don't others? What does population variation look like? Um, and since that, um, since that early interview and conducting my dissertation research, I'd say there's been two interesting updates in the world of brown fat research. Um, one is that is the discovery of what's called beige fat. So we have white fat, we have brown fat, and now we have beige fat, which is a type of fat that shows a phenotype that is a mix of brown and white um, characteristics. What kind of distinguishes brown fat from beige fat is that its origins in development are more similar to muscle, um, whereas beige fat shares its developmental origins with other white adipose uh, tissues. So it's a, a form of fat that can be converted from a white adipose cell, a white adipocyte to a brown adipocyte or give more um, brown-like characteristics. And I think we knew that this existed back in, I think it was 2017, 2018, when we did that interview. But what's come out recently is that there's somewhere to suggest that perhaps the brown fat that adult humans have might primarily be this actual beige type. Um, this is still a new discovery and who, this research is changing all the time. Um, but I think that's pretty interesting because this beige fat seems very plastic. There's some work to suggest that it can change from a more white phenotype to more brown phenotype with repeated cold exposure. So perhaps um, this is playing a role in acclimatization to cold stress. And then there's an interesting paper uh, rooted in, in mostly rodent model research, but I think has interesting applications for human research, suggesting that these beige fats have an epigenetic memory of previous cold stress. So perhaps this has uh, plays a role in developmental plasticity in in beige fat or brown fat. So now the literature is kind of moving to just discussing thermogenic fat so that we don't have to distinguish between brown and beige since we don't know what's what necessarily. In order to distinguish, you need to take a, a biopsy or do some more invasive type methods. Um, so all, very little is known about beige fat. Um, and then the other big finding that I think is exciting is the body of research demonstrating a link between brown fat and uh, biomarkers of metabolic health has grown, has strengthened, that link has strengthened. Um, there's a great study by Betcher and colleagues examining over 50,000 PETCT scans, PET-CT scans, and found that adults that had brown fat were less likely to have cardiometabolic diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Um, so I think this really, this growing work has strengthened the significance of brown fat research for not uh, for health research as well as um evolutionary and um how his evolutionary origins and how things like culture and social political economic context can get under our skin and influence brown fat i am blown away by the plasticity of that fat Isn't i feel like yeah. It's so cool. It it feels like it, there's so much popular media that is talking about fat in very problematic ways. Yeah. But this is a way in which 
fat itself is plastic and connecting that and communicating that to these potential problematic ideas of fat, I think is something that you are particularly well suited to do and well situated to do just showing the complexities of fat as we understand it is like so much cooler than very basic ideas that we could have had. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that means a lot to me. Thank you. I think um, <laughs> I hope to do that in my research moving forward. If um, So thanks. So along those lines, it's, it, a lot of the things you were talking about were the methodologies that are, that are being used and have come up with. Um, and you did talk about your bat suit at the last, uh, at the last interview. And so I was wondering if you could just give folks a refresher on, on your bat suit, potentially how it is linked to how you're using it for these, uh, for the paper that just came out in AJHB. And, you know, I love methods. I love a good method. So <laughs> any other like methodological developments that, you know, you think are like really changing the game? Yeah. Um, so this is, this method is uh, fresh in my mind because I just exited the lab and sat down on my computer having just run this method. Um, we're doing a new study in New York City looking at variation in brown fat here. Um, and the, the what I guess we could consider the gold standard, although it has its own limitations um, for measuring brown fat, is a, a PETCT scan, which involves injecting the participant with a radioactive tracer that's going to um, show the way the tissues that are taking up lots of glucose. Um, so that is a time, money, and expensive uh, method that's not very field friendly and certainly not practical for work in say rural Siberia. Uh, so we've developed a indirect method for quantifying brown fat activity where we take baseline measurements using a thermal imaging camera. And the thermal imaging camera is, uh, is used to take pictures of the shoulder and neck area where brown fat's primarily stored in adults. And then simultaneously, we monitor energy expenditure using a technique called indirect calorimetry. And the participant breathes through a mask that's connected to equipment that is measuring the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in the person's breath. So we can um, use the proportion of those two gases and the breathing rate to estimate metabolic rate. So we do some baseline measurements and then we turn on what we call the bat suit or the cooling suit. And this is a suit that's, um, it's got a pair of pants and kind of a sweater pullover. I used to use a jacket. I really like that jacket, but now they only sell like these sweaters um, that are lined with tubing. And we pump cold water through the tubing of the suit so that the inside reaches about 15 degrees Celsius or which is 16 degrees, uh, sorry, 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So the goal is to keep the person feeling chilly, but not cold enough to shiver. Um, we're trying to quantify non-shivering thermogenesis through this technique by and activating the brown fat this way. And our protocol involves 30 minutes of cold exposure, and we take images of the neck after that cold ex exposure and use the change in skin temperature of what we call the supraclavicular area, that region above the clavicle, as an indirect method for 
quantifying brown fat activity. Um, now, in your question, you mentioned like what what might be coming next. There's some cool work suggesting there might be some uh, blood biomarkers of brown fat activity, um, which is something I think a future researcher should look into, especially with the application of, say, try blood spots and would that be practical? Um, so there, I think that these methods are always um, changing and, and improving, um, but that is that is the method that um, I use in my research. So I want to ask about the New York research in a minute, but um, the paper, the article, uh, I think this was from your dissertation, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's correct. Right? So you're comparing people in Evanston, which is where North uh, Northwestern University is, right, in Chicago, basically. It, it, and I grew up in Indiana, and I used to go up there. It's cold AF. Uh, the, the, the lake effect is a real deal. But the comparison population is uh, Yakusha, uh, an indigenous people in Siberia. So I wonder if you can paint the picture, one, of the contrast, but two – Again, methods like I'm fascinated by your recruitment, right? So you're recruiting at the university there in media and in Evanston and Craigslist. And the way you describe the suit, and I, you know, we've all done research, it's hard to get people to come in to do research. So I'm like, wow, how did you, through these avenues, recruit indigenous people from Siberia to come in and do a study like this? Like it just sounds super complicated. So can you bring us inside a little? Yeah, the success of our recruitment strategy in Yakutia is definitely thanks to my really fantastic collaborators. So I um, work with researchers at Northeastern Federal University in Yakutsk. These are indigenous uh, Siberian researchers, um, head by Dr. Tatiana Klimova. And I'm really fortunate to have joined a research team that has been working together since the 90s. Um, I think Bill Leonard mentioned a little bit the history of the project in his Sausage of Science interview, um, but the success of recruitment is really linked to the strong relationships that Dr. Klimova has and, and our other collaborators with the community of Bergdigestiak, particularly the Gorni Regional Medical Center. And um, we did uh, data collection at the um, at the university, Northeastern Federal University, NEFU in Yakutsk. Um, and so we were very fortunate that there is a high degree of interest in the project. Um, participants have the opportunity to speak with a doctor and about their own medical history and, and their data. Um, but in general, it was my experience that the topic of adaptation to cold stress is one that's interesting to people living in Siberia, um, uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, adults. Well, um, so <laughs> you having a team of someone local who has built relationships is so important. So thank you for explaining that because that's should be obvious from looking at a, a list of authors that some of those are going to be your on-ground team collaborators. What about in Chicago? Yeah, um, I was also surprised by the degree of interest in this topic among people of Chicago too. I think part of the draw also is that uh, we provided our individuals with their anthropometric data. So getting some health data, I think is interesting to lots of folks. Um, but there's also, I think this similar 
uh, mystique of how do I handle the cold in Chicago as well? Because we have a lot of our participants grew up outside of Chicago, really all over the country and some international participants too. Uh, so the- I was wondering that, like how much was your Chicago cohort actually Chicagoan versus the Yakut? Sounds like they probably grew up in Siberia. Yes, all of our um, sample in Yakutia were um, born and raised in Yakutia. I think I think there were maybe four people that grew up in like a tropical zone. Most grew up in temperate zones and none in like an Arctic zone. So, but there was some spread, some variation. Most people were in the, from the Midwest. Uh, I'm hoping in this new study to recruit people that have grown up in a more variety of places. In in the study, the you know one of the premises that you introduced in the introduction was that it's these differences in lifestyle characteristics um, that are shaping variation in acclimatization and brown adipose tissue thermogenesis. Your findings the between these two groups, you're going to see a difference in, in brown adipose tissue thermogenesis, but the relationship between brown fat and other cold adaptive responses were potentially different for these different groups. And I have a I have a follow-up question later about developmental plasticity, especially thinking about people growing up in different places and then all landing up somewhere cold like Chicago and how they're able to adapt or cold like New York, whichever, wherever you want to end up. But um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how, one, is you're seeing this uh, brown adipose tissue thermogenesis difference and then how that is linked to different processes of other cold adapted responses. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was exciting to see this difference. And, and one of the main differences we found was that there was a stronger correlation between change in supraclavicular temperature, which is our indirect measurement of brown fat activity. So, and metabolic change in metabolic rates. So we, we found a stronger relationship between change in bat activity and metabolic rate among the Yakut participants than the participants in Evanston. And even though the change in energy expenditure was similar in both groups. Um, so I think that this is one of those examples of a study raising more questions than it answers. But I, what I think might be going on here is that the significant the role that brown fat is playing in non-shivering thermogenesis in Yakutia may be a bit more significant than in the Chicago area sample. Um, the other main difference we found were in um, change in skin temperature, suggesting that Yakut participants were maintaining warm warmer skin temperatures, even in regions where brown fat is not stored. So perhaps this is evidence of vasodilation, what we call cold-induced vasodilation. Um, and there's previous work that has found that acclimatized populations cycle between vasoconstriction and vasodilation in order to prevent skin temperature from dropping to an, a temperature that could cause frostbite. Um, so we see differences in this vasoconstriction, vaso, vasodilation adaptation, as well as a more metabolic adaptation. So then the question becomes, okay, why are those 
to what, what's explaining this difference. And as you mentioned in the paper, I suggested that perhaps acclimatization might be occurring. So the data we collected in Chicago was um, in the summertime and in Yakutia, it was early fall. So starting to transition to cooler temperatures. I have since taken a look at the data that uh, collected looking at time spent outside and brown fat activity. And I'm actually planning on presenting this data at the AABAs this spring, but we find that individuals that spent more time outside actually had less brown fat activity. So I'm now questioning that seasonal acclimatization is the uh, main pathway leading to those uh, population differences. So this um, points to perhaps developmental plasticity. Um, Could there be genetic adaptations at play perhaps? So yes, this has spurred, of course, more questions for more research. And and for us, so it's a nice transition to to my next question, right? So when you describe Yakutia in Yakutia, in the article, you talk about the Soviet era having put them on essentially what we call in the U.S. reservations. Or so one, it sounds like there has been some probably some impact of that, and and maybe you see that in in the work you're doing. If there may be more inside now than they were, I'm not sure. And then I wonder if you can, you're still affiliated with that project. I mean, when we talked to Bill Leonard about this, an earlier phase of the project, he described the Berlin Wall falling and the Soviet Union collapsing while they're doing the field work. And, yeah. and, and now we've got the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And while Siberia is a little bit distant, I'm sure everything is impacted. So I wonder two questions, you know, like how did the Soviet era maybe impact the Yakut, in a way, socialization, maybe there's brown fat more amplified because they're inside more often. I don't know. And two, how has your research been impacted there now? So to kind of paint more of a picture of what variation in lifestyle looks like in Siberia, um, I, the work that Josh Snodgrass did in his dissertation, I know it's been a while since then, but uh, painted a really interesting picture of Uh, what market integration looks like in this region. And um, there's a fantastic Japanese ethnographer who's worked in the region whose name is now escaping me because I can never remember names, but his research has um, described the economic system that has arisen since the collapse that integrates elements of collectivization from the Soviet era capitalism introduced through market integration, and you could ideas of king-based reciprocity. So rather than say it's common in human biology to um, have some baseline hypotheses that individuals who are more integrated into the market economy will actually participate less in subsistence practices, maybe they stay inside more, they they are not eating foods that are grown growing naturally in the food in the fields. Um, but what Josh Snodgrass's work has found is what he calls lifestyle heterogeneity. And within just a a community, even a household or even a particular individual, there's a lot of different ways of persisting economically 
depending on the season. So the example I like to give is of my colleague, um, Afanasi, who told me about how um, he, he works at NEFU um, and has skills related to endocrinology and studying health. He's a researcher, um, but he regularly makes time to travel to his family's homes in rural Siberia to help out with activities like cutting hay for livestock and hunting duck. And the, sometimes communities will organize together to have these huge fishing expeditions where you really get tons of fish at one at one time. And so the the academic calendar allows him to take those trips to some degree. Um, and it seems as though the individuals who have access to what we call market goods <laughs> from an anthropological perspective, um, the, have the funds to purchase things like a computer or a TV, also have the funds to get the equipment to continue doing these subsistence lifestyles. Um, and then we have the uh, sharing of food between the city and the rural communities. And people are moving regularly between the city and the and rural communities to participate in these things. Um, so there's a lot of variability in, um, in activity. And so how people have adjusted to that or continue to adjust or, or try to adapt and survive in this climate, both economic climate and uh, extreme ecological climate or, or climate <laughs> there is really interesting and I think will influence their brown fat activity. Um, and then to link it to more recent news, um, part of the reason why people continue to participate in these subsistence practices is that food is so expensive or imports are so expensive in rural Siberia. Um, so getting things like fresh vegetables or fruit um, in a market is just obscenely high priced. So it's much more practical to um, you know, have a weekend get together with your family and go pick some berries and make some jams together, um, or have a home garden. Rates of uh, people growing their own food in Siberia are really high, even in the city. Um, that's just a more practical way of surviving in this both economic environment and the ecological context. Um, my understanding of the situation given the war in Ukraine is that prices have only increased in Siberia. And I worry about the effects that has had for health and well-being in Siberia. Um, also, army reserves are being called up to fight. That is a hot topic in Russia, including in Siberia. And so that is context that I've and been considering lately. That's a really good explanation. Thank you. And I can, com yeah, completely, I can visualize it now and understand the additional burden that's being placed on everyone. I was, I was going to say, Chris, um, maybe you should go spend some time in Siberia and you can get all of your gardening done. Yeah. Your people. <laughs> I don't have enough brown fat. <laughs> There's a great cultural anthropology paper about the practice of having a dacha in 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 Yakutsk and the significance. Uh, a dacha is like a, a cottage, so rates of dacha ownership in Yakutsk are really high, and people have more of a relationship with their 
dacha neighbors than the person living in their in, next door in their apartment building because there's a oh, social wow. aspect of it. And I can um, I can believe that yeah. easy. Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool paper because it discusses how practice of yeah, it's a cool paper. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Thinking about, you know, we, we mentioned that your, your upcoming work in New York and thinking about, you know, what you see for the future. What are some exciting projects that you are excited about? What's what's new for you? Yeah. So unfortunately, our, our research in Siberia is currently on hold. The team is excited to continue this work one day, um, but the the war in Ukraine, the invasion has made research in Russia very difficult <laughs> to say the least. The State Department has a has instigated like a no travel warning. Um and we are hoping that as the situation changes, um collaboration can continue. Um, there's been interesting editorials written in, in Nature and Science calling for the resumption of collaboration with Russian and international scholars, particularly in topics related to climate change, because to better understand and fight climate change, it's going to be an international, requires international collaboration. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful for the, the people of Ukraine and people of Russia that we can one day continue this work too. <laughs> I will just, it's not really, um, the situation is heartbreaking in Ukraine yeah. and um, I'm not going to have the words to adequately describe it. It's it's um, difficult to talk about, but if we didn't ask, we felt there was an elephant there in the room that, right. that should be addressed in terms of how research happens. So thanks right. for that answer. Yes. Um, but as I mentioned, I've got a new project going in, in New York to look at uh, developmental plasticity and brown fat. So the cool thing about New York City is that people move to the city from all over the world. Uh, we are investigating how different early life environments might affect adult brown fat activity. Um, we're also exploring how time spent outside might affect brown fat among New Yorkers and the relationship between diet and brown fat activity. Um, and then my master's student, Shelby Pertle, has been spearheading some work looking at the relationship between bone plasticity and brown fat. Mm. So this project has kind of grown into a beast, I think, probably because I was frustrated to not have new data coming in for a while, and there was a lot of pent-up excitement. Um, but thankfully, so far, there's been a lot of interest in the project, so it's going as smoothly as you could expect for, for field work, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, um, there are so many fascinating threads that that I imagine you'll be doing this kind of work the rest of your life if you want to, <laughs> if you want to. And other projects um, in, in cold climates are in the, still in the discussion uh, funding mm -hmm. mid stage, but hoping to return to circumpolar regions again one day. Well, our last question is is circling back to something a little bit more fun, though also sometimes uh, uncomfortable for some people because it's a new question. And we already <laughs> heard that you are coming to the HBA. And once upon a time, they used to host, I think, a talent show. Someone said this yeah. along the way. So we are toying with the idea of reintroducing the talent show and putting our friends and colleagues on the spot on the podcast by say, by asking if you were to participate in the talent show, 
what talent would you be demonstrating for us? It can be our hobbies or, you know, I shouldn't say that right out of the gate, but I know everybody (laughs) in front of everyone doing blank because it's boring. But, you know, our talents are myriad, just like our 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 variations, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea. The chance to see uh, Dr. Jim McKenna do some tap dancing would be right. really high on my list of, go- of dreams. <laughs> um, I am talentless, except as an audience member. I am a fantastic audience <laughs> member. I will make posters. I will scream and dance along. But get me on a stage and I will freeze. Um, <laughs> I, I will admit that I cried during my bat mitzvah from fear <laughs> of singing in front of everyone. I, in fact, I've cried while singing in front of a crowd mm, like five times. I think. <laughs> it's, uh, you don't want me up there. Trust me. It's, it's just uncomfortable and sad. It sounds kind of adorable, but we, we also definitely need people in the audience to get excited. So I'm your hype man. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I see, I see an act where Chris, you bring a portable garden and you start gardening. And then we have Steph on the stage as the audience member watching you garden and cheering you on. Yes. I think a, a great app. <laughs> Yeah, I Don't forget, I mean, we've got our knitters, we've got our gardeners, we've got our embroiderers, we've got our, we'll have a bunch of people doing crafts, and other people are like, yeah, <laughs> go! So when the next time anyone has an activity to present, we'll make sure, Steph, that you are in the audience, and uh, <laughs> be prepared with a sign and lots of enthusiasm. <laughs> Excellent. Count well, me th- in. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there a good way for people to quickly and easily get a hold of you, a social media contact or something, or email? Or uh, The best way is my email, which is uh, my name, Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot Levy, L-E-V-Y, at hunter dot CUNY dot E-D-U. Uh, CUNY is C-U-N-Y dot E-D-U. Um, I am on Twitter, but I haven't checked it in like six months. I think it's... <laughs> Like Sleevy Science, S L E V Y S, and then Science. Thing. We will we will find it when we'll we tweet we'll out the episode. Um, <laughs> thanks for being on the Sausage of Science. The Human Biology Association is on Twitter at humbioassoc. I'm on Twitter at Chris underscore L Y, and I am also on Twitter at Sky S K Y Y underscore M A L. And I know there are other social media platforms that we promote on, but for some reason we've gotten in the habit of give a shout out to twitter like other podcast people so there you go like us follow us uh follow steph's work all the things and we'll see you in reno yeah thanks bye-bye bye